I'm Bruce Hafen, and this is a Faith is Not Blind podcast. Really happy today to be with Kevin Call from Rexburg, Idaho. Kevin and I were just talking about when we got acquainted, both of us in Rexburg. I was the president of Ricks College in those days, near the end of our term here. And Kevin was a young graduate student. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. So good to see you. Finish telling that story. How did you, how did you and I meet? You and I met. Uh, I was coming out for an interview. I had, had from where? From Michigan. I was doing my doctorate in Michigan. What field? Uh, viola performance. And, and what, what was the position you were interviewing for? Uh, the music uh, string faculty here. The one string faculty at Ricks College. The one that's string that's faculty. Right. Am I remembering right that your the job was to conduct the Ricks College Orchestra, which was a wonderful traditional institution? To conduct the orchestra, to do just about everything. It was like to be the music man. I think we had a total faculty of about seven full-time uh, faculty members, and now there's almost 30. So I came out uh, primarily as a practice interview. I really wasn't looking for a job, especially not in Southeast Idaho. And uh, we had just had our third child who was about four months old. And uh, I had had pneumonia for the semester before. Mm. My wife had been taking care of the baby. She needed a break. And this was a free f airplane ride to bring the baby with us. So I thought it would be a good chance for me to practice interviews for next year when I'd be looking for a real job. Our plane got delayed in Dallas, and so when we finally came through Salt Lake, I just passed off the baby to his, her grandmother, jumped on the plane with my viola in hand, arrived here with no luggage, jeans, t-shirt that had been spit up by the, on the baby, and I did my, all my interviews with you and everybody here in my recital, dressed that way, and thought, well, that was a good experience, and then on the way home, you complicated things when you offered me a job. I remember it vividly, Kevin, because... Uh, I cared about music at Ricks College. What Lamar Barris had done here was to establish a tradition, drawing on what his mother had done, for whom the Barris Concert Hall right. was named in the Snow Building. Uh, there was such a foundation that we couldn't invite just anybody to do this. And when we found you, uh, we knew what to do. And, and it was one of the kind of culminating acts of of our time here, and we always felt it was one of the best things that happened. Tell us more about you. Uh, I was just going to ask some obvious questions about where are you from and what are you majoring in. T talk a little bit about um, about your growing up years, Kevin. Were you born with that viola in your hand? So what was life like for you as a child? No, uh, I was born in Salt Lake. Um, I'm the oldest of six boys before we get a little sister about 18 years behind me. My dad was an educator. Um, he was the superintendent of Granite School District for about 13 years. And uh, I had lived my whole life in Salt Lake, except when I was five, he went to Stanford to do his doctorate. And so I spent a couple of years in Stanford rooting for the Giants and watching Willie Mays catch flies out in center field. And then uh, grew up in Salt Lake. And when I was eight, um, I was the oldest. And so I didn't have any older brothers. And there was a kid who walked to the bus station with me and he had a violin hmm. and I remember one day coming home and he opened up the violin and he had two bows and I asked him why do you have two is one for loud and one for soft <laughs> and he said no and he closed the case I got to look at it I walked home and told my mom I want to play the violin which had nothing to do with anything except the fact I wanted to be like Jim nobody in your family was musical at that nobody point. had done anything and at that point my dad was principal at Granger High School and he said well if you're gonna play the violin 
we need to get you a good teacher. And so the uh, music director at Granger at that point was Johnny Chatlin, who was the principal second violinist of the Utah Symphony. And they talked to him about who I should take lessons from. And I started taking lessons when I was eight. And people asked me, when did you decide to go into music? And I told them I never decided to go into music. <laughs> it just happened that way. Yeah, you just started to take lessons. Yep. Yeah, and then, and then and then what? You you continued on, and and as I recall, when we met, you were coming from Michigan. What were you doing there? Were you in graduate school in music? I was. I was doing my doctorate in viola performance. I had played violin all the time uh, growing up. The two biggest days of my life when I turned 19, and it's a long story I won't get into, but I was playing with the Mormon Youth Symphony, and I got my mission call on the same day I was supposed to play a solo in the Tabernacle of Debut with the, my Tabernacle Debut with the uh, Mormon Youth Symphony playing the Barber Violin Concerto and they were on the same day. So I went into the old MTC there at the Mission Home in Salt Lake at 10 in the morning, five o'clock walked over to the Tabernacle. My mother brought my violin over. I played the soloist, played the solo and then walked back to the MCC. Wow, what so, a day. Yeah, you wouldn't forget that one. I won't forget that one. Well, the University of Michigan had a really fine graduate program in music. I knew that, and when I met you, I, I, it told me a lot about you, that you were doing your work there. I mean, I just you, you make all kinds of assumptions, and what's so satisfying now is to look back from the perspective of, what, 30-plus years later, and to see what you've done with your career. You stayed at Rick's all this time, and and then re retired? How long ago did you retire? I retired a year and a half ago, after yeah. 34 years here. 17 years yeah. at Riggs College and 17 years at BYU-Idaho. Yeah. Well, let's, let's look in that, uh, that kind of long-term developmental period for your professional life, uh, Kevin. What, uh, where does your spiritual life fit into this pattern? Did, uh, you know, raised in the kind of home you were in? Uh, what were your early experiences uh, with, with the church, with your feelings about the church, uh, toward God, uh, and everything that relates to that subject? Well, I am definitely a product of uh, pioneer ancestors. When I uh, did my four generation sheets for the very first time to see what work needed to be done, I was amazed to find that all 16 of my progenitors back four generations all did take out their own endowments. Uh, and so they, so I'm definitely a product of that uh, pioneer stock. I grew up in the church in Salt Lake. Um, when uh, when questions would come up, it was interesting. My, my dad again is highly educated, the Stanford doctorate. Uh, um, there was never anything we couldn't talk about. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, one of my earliest memories about dealing with one of the the challenges in church history dealt with the Mountain Meadows. Um, he had had great interest in it. He was at uh, Stanford, of course, Juanita Brooks was uh, from that area. But in doing genealogy, uh, it became very obvious quickly that one of my ancestors was at Mountain Meadows. Oh, really? And Was uh, this a call? No, it was on my mother's side, which my dad was often ready to point out. My mom wasn't often <laughs> thrilled to yeah. have him pointed out. Yeah. But uh, Dad is a great teacher, and he used to teach us about what had happened in Mountain Meadow, and uh, took a great... Um, oh, that's interesting. He took the initiative to teach you. He took the initiative and taught us, and I remember the baseline uh, 
takeaway that we got from it was don't get ahead of the prophet. Oh. And uh, as we talked about it, and I had, I was probably a young man in high school, I had read Juanita's book, Brooks book a couple of times. But um, he actually would, people would ask him to do firesides about it, and he would oftentimes do firesides. And I remember at one point a CES employee, the seminary teacher came up to me and said, I wish we could teach this to our seminary students, but we're not allowed to talk about this. That's interesting. One reason I kind of resonate to that is that uh, the Mountain Meadows, that site, is located Down about in a one-hour drive from my hometown in yeah. St. George. So I've been there many times. Juanita Brooks, who wrote the classic work on uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, was my high school English teacher. Oh, really? she, we lived across the street from Juanita. So I grew up knowing about that story. So for people like you and me, uh, it was natural to know about problems like that. But uh, I'd be interested in how you saw it. Did you see it as a problem? Is that how it was presented? Well, it was, um, you know, you, you look at your grandparents and everybody's telling pioneer stories about what their grandparents did and, and this particular ancestor um, has a great reputation, but there are two sides to every story. None of us are complete, perfect human mm -hmm. beings or we're not black and white and we tend to look at the world in black and white. And this was obviously uh, someone who had some real problems that took place in his life. Uh, shortly after, in 1860, he left um, Utah and went up to Idaho and was a, uh, a founder or northern Utah, rather. This was your ancestor? This is my ancestor. Yeah. Um, I'm a little reluctant to speak his name for fear yeah, that no, somebody right. will <laughs> have run into other people who are his descendants who aren't aware of his, what happened uh, at Mountain Meadow. So I grew up with my dad talking about this, being able to, to deal with some of those things that can be did you, problematic. Did you talk about other subjects in the same way? I, yeah, I could talk with dad about just about anything. Um, and what was his approach to that? What, why, was he kind of, was he a critic of the church? Not at all. Then um, why was he talking about these things? He's a teacher, he's just a natural a teacher. teacher. What, was, what was he teaching? With, um, with the Mountain Meadows, it was follow the prophet, which I guess he, he was, one of his lessons was Brigham Young didn't order the massacre, but that's, you know, that could, could make it seem cut and, and dry. And don't get ahead of Don't Brigham get ahead Young. of him, but there um, was more. It um, was more, I think, basically that uh, don't be afraid to look at history. Don't be afraid to, to look at uh, both sides of a coin. Again, as, a, as an administrator, as a principal, and as a, um, a, an associate, uh, Superintendent, his his area was in psychology and psychiatry. Psychology. He'd been a school psychologist mm. and counselor. Mm. And after his tenure as a principal at uh, Granger, he then became the director of pupil services in Granite District, which at the time was a huge, the biggest district yeah, in Salt yeah. Lake. And so for eight or ten years, he dealt with students who had challenges, uh, those who who had gotten themselves in trouble or were having academic problems. And it was never unusual for us to be out to dinner somewhere and have some young person come up to him and that would doctor call and start talking to uh -huh. him and and you could tell these were people whose lives he had changed um, and of course he never told details to us but uh, um, he was just always involved in some of the areas of uh, people's lives who had challenges mm. who had conflicts mm. um, so how, how did it affect the development of your own faith and testimony uh, growing up in that kind of home with that kind of father I think it taught me that I can look at 
everything. I don't need to be afraid to look at uh, history and what's happened. Um, we always knew that, I, I always knew of his dedication to the church, and yet he wasn't, he was willing to, to look at uh, everything that took place. Um, I had the blessing of growing up in a ward uh, at the time uh, where we grew up. Uh, Elder Holland was in our ward. He wasn't Elder Holland at that point, but I had a great relationship with him just as a probably collected fast offerings from his home. Um, Dad grew up across the street from Boyd K. Packer in Brigham City and was a, a friend there. And, uh, but Dad would always teach me these, these are men called of God, but they're men. They're human beings. And uh, so I guess what I'd say is we never put them so high on a pedestal that if they got knocked off, it would try our, our mm. faith. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, but, but the respect that your father communicated mm -hmm, is, is pretty clear. So how about in your own development? Did you, when did you first run into any uh, questions or difficulties of your own? Or were, did this prepare you enough that, that you really didn't run into too many in your sort of pre-mission years? Um, I think for me, um, I never really questioned my membership in the church or uh, for me growing up one of the biggest challenges was trying to find my own testimony. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, talk talk I, more about that. I did everything quote right if that makes sense uh, growing up. I was never a rebellious kid. Did a few things of course got me in trouble. But uh, as a young missionary when I got called to go on a mission I realized that I just wanted that testimony I'd heard so many people talk about. I couldn't say I know the church is true. I could say I believe it was true. Um, I remember going to the uh, MTC, I guess I think we call it the LTM then, down in Provo, and I've, I just wanted to be able to say that, that I knew it was true. If I was going to go out and teach that it was yeah, true, I, yeah. um, I, I couldn't stand up in a sacrament meeting and say something I know is true that I didn't know was true because I believe it's true. Um, and there, while at the, uh, the LTM, I had a, an experience that uh, I just can't describe it other than it was, uh, there was a day I knew and then there was a day, there was a day I didn't know and then there was a day I knew. What, what and, brought that about? Um, I think what brought that about, I went back and read my, my journal just to remind myself of that experience. It was, a. Uh, um, I had studied French for five or six years before being called as a French missionary, and so uh, learning the language wasn't a challenge. When I got to the LTM, the MTC, I knew my challenge was to try and find a witness. Yeah, yeah. So I had made a, a personal goal. I just remember those times we were memorizing discussions, and I think there were six or seven or eight discussions, and you usually went out of the MTC with three of them memorized. So I made a goal to memorize all of them because I already spoke French, more or less. And I was in a very interesting companionship. There were three of us, which already is uh, a challenge. Uh, my one companion was from Canada, and so he also had a strong background in French. And the third companion couldn't have been any different from us than anybody else. He was a full-blooded Lebanese convert to the church of about 26 years old, who was, had been called to Lebanon, actually, on a mission at that point. And the three of us were together, and uh, he struggled. He struggled with the language. He struggled with uh, everything except his testimony, which was just this vibrant, powerful mm. testimony. None of his family were members of the church. 
And I remember having uh, strong impressions as I'm, I'm trying to memorize all of these lessons that I needed to stop worrying about myself and just try and help my companion. But I'd say, no, I haven't got time to do that. I've got to get these memorized. And uh, one particular day, specifically, I remember him really struggling and me trying to memorize. And I thought, just put down your book and go help him. Mm. And so I spent that day just trying to help him. And it was literally the next day at the temple, uh, after a temple ceremony. And I had, been, I had been asking and seeking for four or five weeks now. I'd been there quite a while. This wasn't the next day. By seeking it out, you were asking. I was asking for, for that personal a witness. A witness. Yeah. yeah. Intellectually, it all made sense. Again, I'd been brought up with a, a very intellectual father and academically. And uh, I, remember, I remember beforehand at one time thinking, why do we use the Book of Mormon? Um, LeGrand Richards has this marvelous book called The Marvelous Work on a Wonder, which lays the gospel out so uh, perfectly. Maybe we should just use that to teach the gospel instead of the Book of Mormon. And uh, I was kind of in that situation, but I had never really made a deep dive into the Book of Mormon mm. until there at the MTC. At the, at the, uh, the LTM. At the oh, LTM. So. And so I was in this deep dive in the Book of Mormon oh. and, and trying to put the promises to test. And I just, uh, I, can, I can point to the day, the time, and the hour when that witness came. And uh, I was riding home on a bus from the temple, and I remember we had to have dinner. And for an hour and a half, stand, I remember standing in that line just bursting because I wanted to shout to, the, to this guy, it's true, I finally <laughs> know that it's mm. true. And uh, that was the longest dinner of my life. And then when we got to our, our uh, evening session at 7 o'clock, I asked the teacher, I said, can I bear my testimony first? Hmm, pretty concrete, pretty yeah. sweet. So and so for the first time, really, I bore a testament at that point. And it, uh, it was probably one of the most singular, most powerful spiritual experiences I have had. I thought then it would come, lots of times it would be like that, which I've come to learn that I believe the Lord gives you some foundational touchstone experiences and then says, okay, now you use that as an anchor to get through these times okay, when things yeah. are tough and complex. Yeah. And, and it's not always going to feel this way. Yeah. Like the Kirtland Temple dedication, followed by a lot of hardship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, what, ha what happened after that, Kevin? Let's just sort of go, go on into your life with a, with a mission in France and music and graduate school and family. I know you're... Uh, uh, talk a little bit about whatever you just pick from that whole, uh, whole long, interesting story of your, of your years since that powerful experience. What, what has happened since then that has maybe tested that or tested you uh, in, in any way? I would guess that, uh, well, I guess I know the next uh, biggest challenge that came. Of course, I finished school, got married to my high school sweetheart, um, went out to Michigan to work on a doctorate. Life was great, came here, interviewed with you, got a fantastic job. And the second year we were here, uh, this young, uh, the, the baby that we had I'd brought out to give my yeah. grandparent or her parents for during my interview, we are on a cruise to Alaska and get a phone call that says she's in the hospital. How old was she? She was two and a half. And uh, so this was my second year. I think I just finished working here for two years. Uh, we didn't know what it was. Uh, we were on a cruise with all of my wife's family, which was great to have that support around. But uh, 
When we finally got back to Primary Children's, we found that she had stage four neuroblastoma cancer. Oh. And uh, my world stopped. And for the next six months, which would have been about my third year here working at the university, that was a challenging time period. Um, I don't know how uh, we, w how I would have ever gotten through it without that underlying testimony and faith, but uh, that was a hard time. And how long uh, did she live? Six months. Um, we tried. It. They started an aggressive uh, therapy that uh, after about three months realized that uh, it wasn't going to take. Hmm. And so she passed away shortly after her third birthday. But interestingly, one of the, probably the next most powerful spiritual experience I ever had was uh, after we had uh, realized that there was nothing we could do and the doctors had said just take her home and make her comfortable. Um, and they gave her three to six months to live, I think, at that point. This just said that, you know, it's not responding. Shortly after we got home, maybe a couple of weeks after we got home, um, she had bumped her eye or something, can't remember what it was, and so no, no platelets, uh, something had swollen. And I gave her a blessing. And the blessing that I gave her was not the blessing I thought I'd give her. Hmm. The blessing that I gave her was that she would pass quickly and, hmm. um, and painlessly, and within probably three or four days she passed away. So that surprised you, huh? It what surprised me is what you came out of my mouth. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I, we talk about the power of the priesthood to heal, and uh, but that was the power of the priesthood for something very different and yeah. unexpected. Yeah. Um, so that uh, that became a, a real touchstone in my life and in our children's lives. We had two children who were uh, we had three children actually at that point who were there: an eight-year-old uh, Cherie, who I think you know, and. Uh, a son who was six, a daughter who was just six months old mm. at that point. And uh, the, the gospel was a, and my understanding and knowledge of the gospel was a great uh, support and help, but it was still just a hard, hard time. Yeah, yeah. How, how, was there anything about that uh, tragedy? I mean, you lose a child that young, uh, that fast. Um, even with the blessing that was given to you, it's just got to be heart-wrenching. Was, was there anything about that that, I mean, you, your faith sustained you, uh, was, did it affect your faith in any way, uh, positively or negatively? Oh, positively. Uh, and really, how can that affect you? Positively? And, uh, you know, looking back, this is now, what, 30, 32 years later? You would never want to do it again, and yet I look at that whole experience as one of the greatest blessings of my life. It uh, profoundly affected me. It hmm. profoundly affected me. Well, a lot of people would say, now come on, you don't have to just show a lot of school uh, spirit here. Tell I, us the truth. I was on the, the fast track of uh, professional success. I wasn't going to spend 34 years in Southeast Idaho at a little junior college. Um, as a matter of fact, just that summer before she was diagnosed, I had gone out looking for other job positions and had found a position at, um, in Iowa where uh, that I was very tempted and interested in and uh, had a great interview out there for three days. 
as I stepped on the plane, the, uh, the dean made a comment to me and handed me, a, handed me a package about tenure. I said, take a look at tenure. And as the plane took off, I just had this sinking feeling. I thought, I don't want to do this. I thought it had to do something with tenure. Um, had I taken that position, had I gotten that position, we'd have been away from family, away from insurance, and everything else when she would have been diagnosed. Um, the Lord's timing is amazing, and it's only in retrospect that you see all of that. So when, uh, when she was diagnosed, my wife and I have talked about this, our world stopped. I remember driving, I remember driving back up from Salt Lake, because we were primary children's uh, every two weeks. And uh, it happened in the summer. Uh, we used to have summer musicals here at Rick's College, you may remember. Well, I had to drive back up to things like yeah, those. And yeah. I remember driving back up along the road thinking, everybody else who's driving past me has no idea what's happened to my world. Uh. And, uh, but it made me stop and look again about what was important yeah. in my life. How did, it, how did it affect your sense, Kevin, your sense of... Uh, the other side of the veil. Do I have that child over there? Um, it was interesting that uh, my mother was at her home when, when Katie passed. My mother had had traumatic experience as a 13-year-old when her mother passed away unexpectedly and uh, close to Mother's Day. and. Uh, None of the the people around there would let this 13-year-old see her mother after she had passed away because they were afraid it would traumatize her. Unfortunately, what they did probably traumatized her more than having had that experience. And so my mother has always had a challenge with feeling this sense of abandonment and, uh, when death has happened. My mother was there when she, Katie passed away, and it, I think it was a, uh, a marvelous experience mm. for her, if I can use that word. and. Uh, and she wrote a poem about Katie that hangs in our house now, about uh, being on the other side and the fact that her mother was on the other side, oh. and now her granddaughter had joined her. Um, I remember profoundly the day after Katie passed and we were sitting at the counter feeling that hole in your family. It's the only way to describe it, there's a hole in your family. But I don't think I've ever felt as strong an outpouring of the Spirit I understand what the Holy Ghost means as a comforter in that. Mm. He's a testifier, and he was a testifier to me mm. before on that experience uh, mm. where I got my testimony. At this point, it was the comforter. And again, a, such a powerful experience. Only, only those who've had that experience yeah, can yeah, no, yeah. Well, what else? Uh, what else have you experienced in your, in your family life or other... Uh, other challenges, questions um, that, are, that have kind of tested you? Have you had this, you know, maybe, maybe that was enough. <laughs> um, I think probably one of the, the biggest challenges I had was that, of course, I grew up, um, the concept of apostles and prophets, uh, we, we claim in the church to believe they're we say they're fallible, and many times we treat them as if they're infallible. And uh, again, we had had discussions with my dad about everything from Mountain Meadow to blacks and the priesthood, which was an issue. And I, I remember as a young missionary, when we see the world in black and white, having a visit from a member of the Twelve, 
Elder Peterson came out, Marky Peterson, and, and taught us that in the pre-existence there were these four quadrants. I still have the notes from my mission about those who were faithful, those who were unfaithful, and those who sat on the fence. And as a young 19-year-old missionary, you take everything as gospel. Um, that wasn't right. And we were wrong. And so that was probably one of the biggest challenges for me was to come face to face with the idea that sometimes we're taught things that aren't right, aren't true, um, and, and that people speculate. And so I had to come to a, had to come to a, some How did you reconcile that, Kevin? Some people would say, well, if what Elder Peterson said about that was not true, then I can't believe anything else that any of the brethren say. Did, did, were you tested in that way? I don't know if test is the right word, except I mean, that I had you, to come to a, of, come to a resolution maybe, yeah, with that. Is yeah, that, how, well, how, did you, how can that how be? How did you process it? You know, the way I have processed it was um, the analogy of the ark and the story in the Old Testament of the ark tipping and someone reaching up their hand to steady the ark. I've become convinced that the ark will tip, the church will tip, but it's not my place to put my hand up, and the Lord will straighten out his own ark in his own time and in his own way. And knowing that the ark is going to tip at times is really, I think, what helps me process oh, it. Oh, knowing the ark may tip at times. You learned that from your father, didn't you? Yeah. I learned that also from uh, Newell Daly. Hmm. We began a series of, uh, of uh, compositions here at the university where we would um, uh, commission composers to write oratorios. And uh, I always, we always put the parameter on them, you can write about any subject you want, but the libretto has to be from scripture. I thought I'm safe if I go that way. And uh, Newell wrote an oratorio called Emmanuel. And like every composer, he was late getting the score to me. And I was calling him going, I've got rehearsals that start in a month, where's the music? And, and uh, Newell said to me, he said, you know, I hit the wall. I hit a wall. And of course, I'm starting to panic thinking, I got rehearsals, I gotta get this done. And then he said something interesting. He said, but I knew there would be a wall. And if you know there's a wall, then you know there's a way over the wall. It's when something unexpected hits a, a wall of opposition? Was, uh, yeah, was, the wall was he, he, he had run, writer's blank, whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call it. He but knew there would be He one. knew there would be a wall. He said, I can't, you can't go through the process without having a wall. But if you know there's a wall that's coming, then you can prepare for it. And, uh, and so I think knowing now my approach, I know that the ark is going to tip at times. That's just the nature of life. Uh, the, the church is, is guided by men who are called of God, but they are human beings, and they are subject to, to make mistakes. And the Lord knows that the ark will tip, but he'll straighten it out. And when I see the ark tip, I don't have to worry that it's going to fall. I just have to hang on and wait for the Lord to straighten out the ark. Hmm. Have you seen him do that a few times? More than once. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah, what's that? I think there's a phrase that Elder Maxwell used to like in the Book of Mormon, where the Lord says, 
I can do mine own work. Maybe that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Anything else, Kevin, before we kind of wrap up? If you, yeah, you've, uh, you've lived a rich, interesting <laughs> life, you've contributed so much. Uh, are there any other you know, experiences you'd mention? I think the thing that's most interesting to me is that uh, now as a father and grandfather, of, father of adult children and grandfather of others coming, it's watching my children and grandchildren deal with some of the same yeah. kind yeah. of challenges and knowing how to support them, trying to know how to support them. Um, Sounds like you've thought a little bit about how to support them. Huh? Yeah. Could you summarize? What, what would you say if you, if you were to give advice to uh, the people who are wondering, how can I support my, my kids, my grandkids, who are faced with such issues, really on a larger scale now because of the, of the advent of the internet and uh, the, you know, n most people wouldn't have ever heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre yeah. back in your day. But now it's just so visible, like so many things are visible that earlier weren't, weren't that clear simply because technology didn't make them kind of in, in, in everybody's face. What would you say to, to parents and, and others who have that question? I think what I would say may surprise some of them. That would be don't rush in and try and fix it. Um, I'm an educator, as you know. Uh, I tend to look at life through the lens of an educator. Uh, as a teacher, I give my students problems. I want them to work through them. My goal as a teacher is not to give them the solutions, but to give them the challenges. Um, if my children, not if, as my children face challenges, these are their challenges and the pedagogy the Lord has devised for them. And it's not for me to go in and, hmm. and try and fix it. Well, there are lessons they need to learn. And my job is to love them and support them and to be there when they ask questions. What would you do if, uh, on, on the particular question? You watched, you know, as you talked about your father, I think mm -hmm. he must have, somehow he communicated to you that even though he wanted you to pro solve problems, he wanted you to know about issues, uh, his attitude toward the church and his, his loyalty, his faithfulness toward it was always part of the message. How, how do you build into a message of spiritual self-reliance? Something that uh, helps people somehow stay close uh, to the Lord and the church. You know, I think the, the model is, again, from the Book of Mormon, when uh, Enos remembers the words of his father. And um, if my children and grandchildren can see, can remember my dedication, my example, my, I've, my share of challenges, and feel safe enough to approach me when they have a question, and not feel like they're going to be uh, chastised or judged like we turn to the Lord when we have questions. You know, when I have questions, the Lord doesn't jump in and answer my questions. He waits for me to come to Him yeah, and petition yeah, okay. for answers and help. And, and then He doesn't get the answer, but He maybe directs me in the right direction. And I think that's the role of a father or a grandfather. Do you remember what uh, Anus in that moment you know, his moment of truth came. He was alone in the forest. Uh, he turned to the Lord, and he remembered wh what his father taught. Do you remember what words from his the father? The words of the Lord sung deep into my heart. 
about the Lord and about Christ. And but he'd uh, heard his father teach. He'd heard his father teach that. And so the thing I hope my children will always know is that um, as I face questions, and, and, and there are more to come, I know there will be more to come, that my foundation is um, built on a testimony I have of Christ and who he is, and that he calls imperfect men to lead his church, and uh, I'm not going to jump out of that boat when the waters get rough. No, you haven't jumped out, Kevin, and you've, your attitude will help a lot of other people with that, helping all of us. Thank you for being here today. Thanks. Really been great to see you again and to visit. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you.